HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Joe Carroll of Fetty Sal, Feeding the Fire, and his co-author, Nick Foshal. Thank you, guys, for being here. Thanks for having us. So, should we talk about wood? I mean, we're all thinking about it right now. (laughs) Yeah. Just looking at each other. We're all just thinking about (laughs) wood as an ingredient. That's right. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, Feeding the Fire is this amazing uh, tome that you guys put together about barbecue. And it's, it's barbecue in general. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the classic stance of barbecue, such as is Fetty Sow. I mean, Joe, you're, you're a guy who had a grill in the 90s in your parents' backyard throwing pizzas and lobsters there. Uh, tell me about that your... Was high school. <laughs> high school. Tell me about your obsession with fire, the grill. Well, you know, I think it, it goes back to being a little kid and kind of being obsessed, literally being obsessed with fire, watching stuff burn and liking to watch stuff burn. I mean, it sounds crazy to say that, but but it's true. I mean, you know, people like watching things burn, uh, especially when you're a young kid, you become fascinated with it. And then I think by default, you know, for some weird reason, and I'm not 100% sure why, you know, dads are in charge of the grill outdoors for some reason. Like moms cook inside and dads cook outside. <laughs> But my, my dad would do that sometimes, but he wasn't, like, into it. So I kind of took over at a young age. I started cooking at a very young age, so I was already had that mindset and knew what to do and knew how to go about things. So at a pretty young age, before high school, I started grilling. For You know, if we were sitting outside grilling and having dinner, I would probably be the one doing it, you know, when I was in 6th, 7th, 8th grade. So it just kind of took off from there. And, 
you know, I think what I like about uh, there's there's multiple things I like about it. One is how it affects the food very specifically, and gives a char and gives that crust to, to meats and stuff. But another is just the communal and social nature of it, being outside, standing around with friends, having a few beers, whatever it might be. It's it's just fun, and uh, you know, took that to another level when I got into barbecuing, and that was in the '90s. I love how you you, you can't be without grilled or cooked meat that you actually ordered hamburgers on there. That's a wonderful move. This, by the way, just a little side note about Roberta's hamburgers. They're like some of the best burgers around. And no, nobody seems to really know about it. I, so maybe I, I preach be talking about gospel this on the all the time. They are amazing. Irish American, New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, all I really know about that kind of mudded cuisine is hot dogs. New Jersey loves their hot dogs. Tell me, tell me about that affinity and where to go for the best you know, ones. I don't know where it comes from. I know as a, as a little kid, my, my parents are both in the Bronx. My dad is of Irish descent. My mom, Italian. And my dad always, still to this day, just loves hot dogs. And as a little kid, there was this hot dog truck, like a town away from where we lived. And he would take me there all the time to get hot dogs. I was a really little kid. And then there's a... There's a place that's now in my hometown that when I was growing up was, uh, again, another town away um, called Jolly Nick's. And Jolly Nick's deep fries their hot dogs, as do many places in North Jersey. It's I, I, I don't know, how, again, how this thing came about exactly. I know Rutt's Hut is the place that's super famous for it in Clifton. And deep fried hot dogs are really good, man. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's something just that hits your soul. That's our next them. book. Yeah, that's yeah. your next book. Mm-hmm. Well, because looking through this book, you do have a little bit of a soliloquy to two New Jersey institutions of maybe your past and, you know, uh, Uncle Dewey's Outdoor Barbecue Pavilion mm-hmm. and Henry Hotz. You guys visited both those places or revisited yeah. sure. for, for Joe's case. Um, you know, when I first discovered those places, I don't know, about a decade or maybe, God, maybe 15 years ago or so, um, I was kind of shocked that this existed in New Jersey. Now, that's granted, that's very far away from where I grew up. I grew up in, in North Jersey, just north of the George Washington Bridge. This is down in the Pine Barrens, so quite a hike from where I grew up. But nonetheless, still New Jersey. And it was just this shocked me that not only was it people, you know, at least trying to do authentic barbecue, real barbecue, but it certainly looked real and felt real. And, you know, you close your eyes and spin around and open them and you think you were in South Carolina or you know, in, in some place in Tennessee or, you know, it could be anywhere down south. Uh, it's, it's a pretty rural, desolate area out there. And there are these, you know, kind of shacks on the side of the road doing this, doing this barbecue. Yeah. I mean, did it, Nick, did it feel that transportive? Did it feel like you were in New Jersey or you were in some regional barbecue country? I mean, the Pine Barrens doesn't really look like the New Jersey that we usually think of. Uh, Uncle Dewey's for sure seems like it could be right out of the Carolinas yeah. or Kentucky or any of those places down south. And a lot of the folks who opened uh, barbecue shacks down there right. moved came, up from, came from there from the south, right. so it makes sense. In, in in doing this book together, you know, Fetty Sow is more than a phenomenon; it's now an institution. Um, what you develop for urban barbecue by kind of culling the best of regional barbecue styles, ideas, and techniques uh, prefaces with that barbecue is not a recipe. It's absolutely it's a technique. T- yes. Tell me why that overriding theme. In for for Sau or for the book for for both in a sense. I mean, because it's true. It's you know there is no real recipe for barbecue. It's more a matter of how you go about doing it. The recipe comes in with 
you know, the rub you might put on it or the, or the sauce you might make for it. Um, other than that, it, it's, it's really like following a, a method, step-by-step method of how to, how to cook something, not really how to prepare it. And if you look at, you know, the, the, the roots of regional barbecue styles across America, they are all, all of them almost have the same story where it's, uh, some, some form of protein that was, you know, raised locally in that area and, and whatever wood, uh, grew nearby. And the, the combination of those two things is what created that regional style of barbecue. When you take all that away and you're in New York city or in another city, um, you have a little more freedom than to kind of develop your own thing. And I think that's what Fetisau did was, um, you know, take, so the, the, I, the, the thing that sets Fetisau and, and some of these other quote unquote urban barbecue places apart is the selection of high quality meat. And, you know, that's, that's been a game changer for many restaurants and for many barbecue lovers. Well, the first time I had, barbecue there right after Fetisau opened uh, my birthday that year. Uh, it, it completely changed my life. Um, and that's not an overstatement. It's, and that's why I wrote this book. Um, just the quality of, of meat that they were using created a completely different style of barbecue. Well, I mean, we, we can preach to that meat here at Heritage with the Piedmontese beef. Right. Well, um, that's where they get a lot of their meat from. Sure. Yeah, I think three styles of pork, at least, Duroc, Red Waddle, yeah. um, and, and, and aside from the quality of meat, um, it was that, again, <coughs> obsession with this single entity, this one dry rub that would be, you know, for all. Right. Um, tell me what, you know, that, that perfect ratio, that, that, you know, everlasting recipe is and how it's become. You know, that, that recipe, it was one of the earliest dry rubs I ever made when I got into barbecue. And it was an amalgamation of a, of a fairly standard dry rub with you know salt pepper and brown sugar combined with this idea of using coffee that that was something that goes back to you know cowboys on on the trail they basically didn't have a lot of spices with them and nor did they have access to a lot of spices so coffee was was used a lot of times as a spice and it's you know not unheard of to put a coffee rub on a steak before it goes on the grill or something like that so i kind of married those two things together and what I loved about it, and I, and I didn't necessarily know this would happen prior to doing it, is that there's something that took place over those hours of that meat smoking with that rub, where the brown sugar and the coffee became one. They, they, they changed. They were no longer the sweetness of the brown sugar and, and the roasty bitterness of the coffee. It became one thing. And I, I liken it to you know making a cup of coffee and putting milk and sugar in it and how very different the coffee tastes than if you drink it black versus putting a little milk and sugar in it. And that, that sugar does something to the, the flavor of the coffee. And it doesn't just, just simply make it sweet. It really changes the, the taste of it. And when that rub is at its best, when the meat is cooked at its best and the fat is rendered at its best, it's, to me, like meat candy. It, it creates this in- incredible layer of sweet and savory on top of each other. Did you guys wax poetic, you know, during this book and during road trips? Uh, because it seems like most barbecue guys have, you know, a mode, a method, but even more so a mantra of how you treat your meat, how you smoke your meat. And I know you had humble beginnings, uh, Joe, with a $40 kind of Weber. That's right. And I, I know, Nick, you had a lot of equipment while testing this book. Well, the same 
forty dollar bullet smoker and and a, you know eighty dollar uh, Weber grill. That was it. Yeah, I mean, how important is it to strip down to these bare essentials and really get to? I, I hate to do this, the meat of the matter. I think it's the best way to to learn the craft because when you use a cheap smoker um, or a, a simple grill, you have to pay attention to the fire first and foremost and make sure that um, you know it's at the right temperature that you're feeding it frequently enough and you realize it's it's actually not that hard if you're paying attention and when you upgrade to some more expensive equipment or some you know fancy commercial southern pride smoker where it's basically a, a set it and forget it thing then i think it you lose some of the as a as a home cook some of the experience of of um smoking meat or grilling meat i mean did you no miss question. that once you open up fetty sal i mean you have yeah. that massive beast in there and look i, I you know I, i'm not going to kid anyone i when we opened feta i wasn't the guy in the kitchen making this stuff but yes there there is something that changes when you start using a big commercial smoker uh, you know we can train i can train anybody with zero kitchen experience or really zero cooking experience to you know watch the barbecue and make sure it comes out at the right time um but a little more difficult when you're dealing with a, a smoker and you have to create your own fire watch the temperature of your own fire um keep the, your smoke levels in check um you know there's a lot more hands-on working there's and literally staying up all night attending this because it's not the type of thing unlike the commercial smokers where you can load the meat up load the wood up walk away come back eight hours later ten hours later when you're working with these these smokers and this this is true with any you know non-electric or gas-fed commercial smoker um you have to pay attention to these fires. It's, you know, you can't let the fire go out. You can't let the fire get too hot there. You have to be on top of it. So going to bed is not really an option. <laughs> so what you really need is a surrogate smoker, right? Yeah. Exactly. Just to hire someone to sit there and wash your meat. for you. That was, exactly. that was one of the challenges of, you know, even before we started working on the book, just talking about it is how can you take this uh, set of techniques and actually translate it into recipes? And we kept asking ourselves, we really want to do a cookbook. Does it make sense to call this a cookbook? Because barbecue is is more of a technique, and, and it's more about paying attention to the fire and the thing that you're smoking, and it doesn't come down. It, it's not easily quantified. You know, some some of our recipes call for smoking something from ten to sixteen hours or something like that. Yeah, that range is is very deliberate because you know different factors, different types of meat can um, be affected very differently. But then you talk about, you know, Texas, Kansas City, Memphis, Carolinas. They're signifiers. Like, if, if I said Texas to you, what would you say about their barbecue? Well, the two things that, that probably, you know, mean the most in Texas is beef and no sauce. And then Kansas City. And Kansas City is a, is a lot of sauce and predominantly pork. Memphis. And rib. And Memphis as well. Rib, rib base and sauce base. And then the Carolinas. And Carolinas whole hog. So I mean, vinegar based. They're, they're very know, so, right. There are there are codifying things about those barbecues. So in in, in writing this book, um, I know there's been a lot of barbecue books prior. What's different about how you kind of uh, set up your system, how you set up these tools, and how you set up uh, these ways of you know making sure you get the best quality barbecue you can make? You know, I think what we try to convey is first of all you have to train yourself and be comfortable with your yourself and knowing whether it's grilling meat or barbecuing meat when doneness is 
you know, when, when the meat is at its perfect doneness point, which is not the easiest thing. And in fact, when it comes to barbecue, I almost feel it's easier to train someone with no experience than to take a, a chef who has, you know, a lot of professional experience or, or, you know, has gone to school for, you know, culinary school to learn how to cook, to, to get them out of that mindset when it comes to barbecue. It is a lot more difficult because you don't just go based on purely time and temperature anymore. You really had, it becomes a tactile thing. You really have to feel the meat, pull on the meat, poke and tug and see where, where it's at and, you know, tear pieces off and, and, constantly taste it to really know when that because time and temperature will only give you a, a small piece of the story when it comes to the doneness of barbecue and then pretty much the opposite is true for grilling for grilling right you want a thermometer there absolutely you can't you know take a piece off a of steak every few minutes and eat it i mean you could but um <laughs> there'll be no steak left <laughs> you need you need a you need a thermometer most for the most part to know when something's done the funny thing is grilling and barbecuing often are linked together, but they're really at opposite ends of the, the cooking spectrum as far as the technique goes. They're, they're radically different. They, they're opposite things, completely different. One is high heat and quickly cooked, and the other is low heat and slowly cooked. And, uh, you know, one is generally lean pieces of, of protein, and the other is generally really fatty pieces of protein. And I know it wasn't just by happenstance, but I think the best place to kind of see both of those things is standing on Metropolitan Ave <laughs> in between Fetty Sow and St. Anselm. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come right back. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with the men of Feeding the Fire, Joe Carroll and Nick Foschall. An amazing book about not just barbecue, but grilling. And I, I think we've differentiated that enough in the first half. But let's talk about those things, those outlying regions, those unexpected discoveries like Cornell chicken, uh, you know, tri-tip in Cali, Santa Maria, barbacoa in southern Texas. Western Kentucky and its mudden and Maryland pit beef. I, for some reason, I'm not sure why, but when I get into something, I tend to immediately gravitate towards the fringes of whatever that topic is. <laughs> I'm not sure why, but it, that's what excites me. You know, the, the meat of any given topic is usually what's m mostly discussed and, and most people know about. So I, I love finding the unknown and finding the things that people aren't really talking about a lot. So I, I've always been interested in, in those styles. 
but also I think there is a relation to what we're doing here in New York City and to what those guys are doing, be it in California or Baltimore or Kentucky. And that is doing barbecue that is really by by standards and tradition and, and by um, the technique barbecue without a doubt, but that doesn't really get, you know, caught up in the discussion of traditional barbecue. And, and, you know, you mentioned before kind of the famous barbecue places that we all know about, and that's all that really ever gets discussed. Um, I think that's changing, thankfully, about New York City a little bit, um, partly because we're doing very traditional barbecue based directly on North Carolina or Texas, and partly because we're doing our own thing. But there are all these little pockets of micro-regional styles of barbecue that some of which are more like barbecue than some things that we consider barbecue. And, and those like pit beef in Baltimore, for example, never get called barbecue. Mm -hmm. Um, and then other things like Monroe County barbecue in Kentucky really seems more like grilling, even though it's absolutely called barbecue there. They don't think twice, they don't see anything weird about it being barbecue. It's barbecue to them, you know? So it's, it's funny how it's approached and, and it's, how it's discussed depending on what state you're in or you know where you're located in the country. Well, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing to bring up. And Nick and I were talking about like the, the urban nature of barbecue these days. What freedom you have in a city, um, not just as you know a pit master or as a chef, but also about the space itself. Um, what you did to kind of push the urban barbecue environment. One was way ahead of its time, you know, from vintage knives as tap handles and just creating that kind of atmosphere. But also, again, having that freedom to be able to experiment and kind of define yourself personally rather than regionally. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think I am sort of defining myself regionally. It's just that my region is here, is is New York. As I said, my, my entire family is from Manhattan and the Bronx. I grew up in North Jersey. We went to college in New York City. I've been here since 1989 i'm a new yorker i, I you know I, and at the very least i'm from this general area so there are as would be true no matter what part of the country anyone came from there are regional signifiers to our cuisine and i, I wanted the barbecue that we're doing here to represent that it would not be genuine of me to, to try to be Texas or North Carolina or Memphis or anywhere else I'm not from. Um, I could do that. A lot of people do that because this is where barbecue, you know, where barbecue is from. So I'm going to do this kind of barbecue. But for me, it made sense because barbecue is a technique. It didn't have to stay, you know, it didn't have to be this very specific style. It's just a technique. I could apply that technique to almost anything that made sense in the context of that technique. In a way, it's it's one of the easier cities in the world to open that kind of restaurant. If you tried to Absolutely. do it mm -hmm. in Raleigh or in yeah. Austin, you know, you might no have been shot. No question. It, you know, a freedom from not having this historic kind of weight on our shoulders about what barbecue should or shouldn't be. And then also a freedom of the population of this town being so open to food and so accepting of trying new things that... I mean, that's what I, that's what I love. You know, why I love being in this business in New York city is, 
you know, you could do so many different things. And I don't mean just be wacky for the sake of being wacky. I, I mean, do some really interesting stuff and you know there's an audience for it. You know there's people who get it and, and appreciate it and want, want to take part in that. At the same time, there are those cynics. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not calling you hard, Nick. I, I'm, I'm calling you. Uh, you came so emphatically uh, back about the epiphany that was St. Anselm. And I think it was the butcher steak, just a piece of meat we kind of all have taken for granted and Mm -hmm. grilling being kind of this national thing that everyone did. But what was Joe doing that was different and right? He was cooking it. He was actually cooking the meat properly, um, which, you know, creates a whole new family of of flavors. And one, he was selecting a good piece of meat, um, not some crappy steak from the grocery store. And getting enough heat, enough char on it to to really transform it into something that had a lot more depth of flavor, and and, and that's I think what has um, opened a lot of people's minds when they have that steak at Saint Anselm. It's it's one very simple dish. Um, it also happens to be a, a, a tremendous bargain, but um, you know that that alone. Um, will change the way you look at grilling if you just look at how one piece of meat is properly cooked and how much difference that can make you can apply that to pretty much anything you put on the grill including vegetables and and things that aren't protein visually you know the axe handle ribeye is 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 something to behold um i've always felt like meat in general has been bigger is better you know it's always been the showy thing right uh how how do you feel about that, you know, axe handle versus something more like a skirt steak? You know, I love both equally. Um, and look, there, there's no question there's something impressive about that giant bone-in ribeye sitting on a plate, especially when it's 80 ounces and it's feeding a few people. Um, but I equally love skirt steak and, and any other great cut of meat, uh, rump steak. That You know, we, we have a recipe for rump steak in the book, and I love rump steak, and that's something that... Nobody really cooks anymore, makes anymore, even thinks about. So it it really comes down to just great cuts of meat. And what I love about ribeye is the richness and fattiness of the meat in a ribeye is just so delicious. And so, you know, it's probably my favorite cut of meat on on a cow. Let's talk about those lesser or other cuts of meat that have often been neglected. What what did you find going through this process that kind of surprised you? Well, everything on the menu at St. Anselm is deliberate and somewhat contrarian on some level. I mean... Instead of lobster tails, they have giant languistines. Instead of um, pork uh, veal chops, they have veal flank steak. Right. You know, you can go on and on and on. Yeah, our our point is, I think our our point was twofold with Saint Anselm. One was to take an approach that was an approach I grew up with, a very Italian or Mediterranean approach, and that's just find the best quality ingredients and get out of their way. Don't mess them up. Treat them right. Cook them right. But don't overdo anything. Don't try to layer thousands of different flavors and herbs and spices and all this crazy stuff, crazy techniques to it. Just cook them properly and they'll sing. And, I, you know, I can't preach that enough. The other is, you know, challenge the diners a little bit. Well, again, this is one of the benefits we have of being in New York City is to really push people's buttons a little bit and challenge people. Don't give them everything that they expect twist that a little bit, turn it on its head because there's so much other great stuff out there too that people need to be aware of. You know, when we opened Spite and Dival, my beer bar 12 or whatever years ago, 
we very purposely didn't carry certain beers, even beers that we we liked, because we knew that with the type of list we were putting together there, if we had those beers on the list, people would just come in and order those beers over and over again because they'd see all this crazy stuff on, on our boards that they didn't know or barely knew how to pronounce and would just immediately gravitate towards what they knew. So by eliminating what somebody knows and, is, and eliminating their comfort zone, they're forced into trying something new and, and taking someone's recommendation and you know listening to what the bartender or server or whoever it is might have to say about the, the products that we're selling. I mean, to, to write a cookbook, you do have to standardize certain things, steps. I mean, I, I'm trying not to call these things recipes, but you have to have some kind of protocol. Um, you've done that, but where have you left room for experiment? Because obviously you enjoy the aspect of freedom when it comes to barbecue and grilling. Hopefully we'll give the the reader the tools to know, you know, how to select their ingredients. Um, we go pretty in-depth on how to how to pick the right meat in, in many, many categories and seafood. And then how to how to cook it. I mean, it sounds obvious, but, um, you know, just the, the difference between um, uh, what something will do over a low or medium hot fire versus a, a really hot, scorching hot fire can change the flavor of the food. Hopefully we'll give them the tools to understand when to use certain techniques techniques and certain heat levels um and and learn how to apply them to whatever they've chosen to make i mean two simple ones burning and salting um often don't really get discussed in either of these categories uh, you know as often as they should uh tell me what effects those could have on meat and how important they are i mean hugely important salting i mean they essentially do the same thing too if you're salting early what it's what it's doing on a very tiny, tiny scale is creating a, a mini brine on the meat itself, on the surface of the meat. It's drawing out liquids from the meat. It's kind of mixing together with the salts and then getting drawn back into the meat, which is exactly what happens when you put meat into a, into a brine, brining liquid. And ideally what you're doing is, is putting flavor into the meat itself, not just on the surf, surface of the meat. And hugely important for for properly seasoning any any cut of meat. It's great for putting you know salt on a steak far in advance to it going on the grill. It's also really important when you want to do a nice thick pork chop like we do at Saint Anselm on the grill. Put a nice char on it without it drying out at all. I can't tell you how many people have had the pork chop there that I've spoken to and told me it's been one of the greatest pork chops I've ever had. Or they don't generally ever order pork pork chops or like pork chops because they tend to be dry and they had our pork chop there and we're blown away at how juicy it was not simply from brining it's not rocket science it's nothing but you know, brining almost, it kind of is rocket scientist science oh it's and, definitely science i mean there's no question about it that's why i'm more often than not a, a brining skeptic because i've seen a lot of people you know over brine and and you end up with this mushy salt watery tasting thing where the, the you know the flavor of the meat's been completely overwhelmed and I think brining is, is actually pretty hard to know how long and, and how much. And, and um, one thing, you know, that they do at St. Anselm um, and that we do in the book, and, and I think I've taken away as a home cook, is, is to not treat brine just as a, a seasoning, um, but to treat it as a flavoring. And, right. you know, they brine in, in barbecue and apple cider and all these other great ingredients. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into these brines, but you actually get all of those ingredients back out when you eat the dish. I think it's 
um, for me, that was a big lesson learned. So we're talking about this meniscus, like you said, you know, the brining, bringing it out to the surface. But another such kind of uh, phenomenon is the smoke ring. And I don't want to go without talking about that. It's kind of like hitting oil. It's kind of, you know, something underneath the surface you have to crack through. It's kind of like any movie where they tear away something and they find a treasure map. I mean, it, it is this amazing thing that is really fucking hard to, to accomplish and find in, in barbecue around this country. You know, the thing about it is it, it might be hard to actually find in barbecue, but it's not actually hard to get that smoke ring on the meat. It's just a matter of using real wood and taking time. It, it, it's really fairly simple. Unfortunately, many barbecue places don't use real wood or they don't take the time. Uh, and, and this is true, uh, you know, at most commercial barbecue places, but it's also true. I mean, you know, Nick and I have, have lamented many times throughout the making of this book and traveling around the country at how little great barbecue there really is, unfortunately, even in the, the hotbeds of barbecue in this country. It's few and far between to have really great transcendent barbecue. Uh, unfortunately. So getting a smoke ring isn't that difficult. It's just a matter of being, you know, all in to using real hardwoods. And even if you're burning them down to charcoals, using real hardwoods and taking the time, letting, letting the meat cook for the, for the, the length of time it really needs to go for. I mean, there are still some of those bastions in the country. There are still some places to go and see. But you'd be surprised how many of them are, are using, you know, commodity meat products. Almost all of and, them, unfortunately. And not getting enough smoke flavor into that into that product for it to taste like barbecue. I just got back from the Carolinas. Uh, I was down there for a week, and I hit several of the places on everyone's, you know, list. Some I'd seen, been to before, and some I hadn't. And I was bummed out. At, at how um, kind of plain a lot of the barbecue was. You wouldn't know that it had ever touched smoke. It could have been um, a pork shoulder someone had put in a slow cooker and then, you know, chopped up and put on the sandwich. I mean, how felicitous was it that you met Sarah Jenkins and she invited you to a pork taste-off, you know, at the, at the impetus of Fetty Sal? I know Sarah through her cousin, um, Matt, uh, A.K.A. Skittles, and <laughs> Skittles and her are partners in Porchetta. But I know Skittles. He was he lived essentially across the street from Spite and Dival when we opened, and was a regular essentially from day one. And we hit it off, became good friends, and through Skittles met Sarah um, again. Early days of Spite and Dival. This has gone back at least ten ten or more years, and Sarah liked it there. She liked what we were doing with the like cured meats, and she liked it. The Waller wines were by the glass. They were well selected, and like there was thought that went into it. So Sarah and I became friendly, and it was it, it was just perfect timing. I would say more than anything that we were just beginning this project in opening this barbecue place, Fetisau, and Sarah was doing this party where we were tasting all these different heritage breed pigs alongside commodity pig. And really could tell the the funny thing too, because it was predominantly all chefs who were there doing this. Nobody could really tell a great difference between each individual heritage breed pig, be it Red Waddle or Duroc. Um, 
but everyone could tell the difference between the heritage breed animal and the and the commodity. Everyone, it was hands down, and you could look at it really and tell. You didn't even have to taste it. The commodity, the commodity pork was so pale and had lacked so much intramuscular fat and even even fat cap compared to these heritage breed animals that were much darker, redder in color and had great intramuscular fat and great big fat caps. And you could smell it too. I mean, really great pork. It smells funky. It smells a little dirty actually, you know? <laughs> you know, th- this is really barbecuing, grilling for a new generation, one that not only knows where their food comes from, but understands how to treat it properly once it's right. on the grill or right. in the smoker. Um, you know, something that you've seen around the world, uh, like at Yakiniku uh, in Japan, in Korea, like the level that meat has been on there and the care is finally coming to the U.S. and being able to express itself in, in, in the cooking styles and, you know, at, at the locations that we really care about. So uh, th- this is almost a celebration of us arriving to that point of of. Well, there's similarities. I mean, the way they treat meat at, you know, Yakitori's and Rivataya's and the way uh, a place like San Anselm treats its product is that very little adornment is added to it. It's, right. it's they let, let the protein in. I think it's, you know, our timing has been um, good and, and also sort of inevitable now that we as home cooks have access to these great proteins and great ingredients. You know, we need a guide to to cooking them properly and respecting them and you look in the past you know few decades of grilling and barbecue books it's mostly been about ways to mask that bad flavor or lack of flavor of the main ingredient that you're cooking you have uh you know some some crappy pork or chicken or or beef and here's um you know 200 sauces right lots of marinades and sauces and that kind of stuff and we've moved we're able to move past that now and really just focus on the main ingredient not do too much to it it's not that there's anything wrong with marinades and sauces but to only do that is is losing the point is missing the point completely um the the meat or the protein or even the vegetable if it's vegetables whatever it might be that's the star that should be what you're paying attention to and, and really what's going to sing on the plate when it's finished. Well, thank you for at least creating a North store, uh, a compass rose for us at the corner of, you know, Metropolitan Havemeyer. If, if, if you need uh, absolutely some kind of a, a semblance of where to go for barbecue and grilled meat in New York, <laughs> if not this country, if not this world, stop by <laughs> Fetty Sal, nice. St. Anselm. Thank you fellas for writing, feeding the fire. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hope to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.